Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. We're going to read down to verse 36 this morning. You'll find that on page 870 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. 870 if you're using the church Bible. And we're looking at Luke eleven twenty-nine to 36. And let me again pray for us briefly as we come to the ministry of God's word this morning. Father in heaven, would you please prepare our hearts to receive your word? We know that we only get to hear so many sermons. I know that I only get to preach so many sermons in this life. And we would not come thoughtlessly or carelessly. We come earnestly desiring to hear your word. To have our ears open and the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might see and hear And understand the precious truths of the gospel. And so, our God, would you please help us? Would you please send your Holy Spirit this morning to illuminate us, to make us to see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory? We pray that you would draw us to Christ. We pray that you would build us up in Christ. We pray that we would be rooted and grounded in him and established in the faith and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, our God, would you remove all unbelief? Would you increase our faith? And would you accomplish your purposes as your word is read and preached? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. Luke now says, when the crowds were increased, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who may enter, those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, Your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, our nation is a nation that both loves and hates signs. I realized this many, many years ago, uh, traveling through uh, portions of Germany, and there were no signs wherever I went. Uh, It would be in villages, outskirts of the city. There were almost no signs. I remember on one occasion, I went looking for a restaurant, and somebody said, well, you just go down here, and you turn right, and then you go down six houses, and it's going to look like all the other houses. And the restaurant you're looking for is tucked away in that neighborhood, and there's no sign. And there was no sign. And then I came back to America, and there are signs everywhere. There is sort of a helpful illustration, the iconic episode in Seinfeld. I can't believe I'm about to give you a Seinfeld illustration, but here we go. 
There's that great episode in Seinfeld where the Kenny Rogers roaster has moved in right outside of uh, Kramer's window. If you've never seen this, if you're under 30 and you've never watched Seinfeld, you're really missing out. This is one of the greatest iconic uh, episodes in Hollywood history. And and, uh, Jerry is coming home one day and he sees a red beam of light coming through uh, Kramer's door and, and Jerry puts his hand there and he goes over, opens the door and the light just bursts through and, and he says, what is that? And he says, ah, Kenny Rogers Roaster just went in. And then they, they realize there's a big rooster that's lit up and, and Kramer can't sleep and it's wrecking his life. And so he asks Jerry if he can switch with him and they switch apartments. Um, but then Kramer realizes how wonderful the chicken is and he doesn't want to admit it and he falls in love with the Kenny Rogers Roaster. And then at the end of the episode, the light goes out. And it's a brilliant and humorous episode about our love and hate obsession with signs. Now, we live in a culture where signs are everywhere. And Jesus ministered in a culture where there were signs everywhere. Um, When we read the Bible, sometimes the most obvious explanation is the one that we often miss. Here in this account before us, uh, the, the crowds have been watching Jesus perform these incredible miracles. Most recently, he has healed a man, and the Pharisees have said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, and then others who were there said, give us a sign that we may believe who you are. Now, that was one of the reoccurring statements among the Jewish people. They were always asking the Savior for a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, give us a sign from heaven. And the irony was, everywhere that Jesus went, he was giving his people signs. Everything that he did was a sign that he was the Messiah and the Redeemer. Everything that he did was a sign that said, I am the Redeemer. And it was like a bright, flashing neon light in the face of all the people saying, I am here, I am the savior, I am the long-awaited redeemer, I am God's redeemer, believe in me, I am the one who came from heaven. And the people constantly said to him, give us a sign. Now, we have one of those accounts here, and and we see very clearly the uh, obsession that the Jewish people had with signs. When the apostle Paul, who was himself a Jew and a Pharisee of Pharisees, after he is converted, uh, writes to the church in Corinth, he says very clearly, Jews request a sign. Now, part of the reason for that is that the entire history of Israel in the Old Covenant was God giving special signs that he was the covenant Lord, that he was the God of his people. And they saw those signs. They saw the, the cloudy and fiery pillar in the wilderness. They saw God separate the waters and make a dry road for his people to pass through into the wilderness. They saw that the bread that came down from heaven, they saw the manna, they saw the quail, they saw the serpent on the pole, they saw the bitter waters made sweet. They, they saw sign after sign after sign after sign that was pointing to the fact that Jehovah, Yahweh, is the true God They saw his power and they saw his signs attesting to what he was telling them in his word. 
And as Israel's history progressed, there were more signs. There was fire that came down of heaven on the altar of the prophets of Baal, showing that Yahweh was the true God, that the other gods and the nations are just idols. There were signs through all of Israel's history. So you can, in some sense, see why the Israelites became obsessed with signs. The problem, and we're going to see this this morning, is that they started to use that as a way to suppress the truth about the one who was himself the sign sent from God into the world to attest that there is salvation in none other, that he is the only redeemer, that he is the only way, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And notice, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see two things as we consider the people suppressing the truth right with Jesus glaring like a halogen bulb in front of them. They are going to say to him, give us a sign, and he is going to rebuke them and correct their unbelief. We're going to see two things this morning. The first is that religion without repentance is hopeless. So Jesus is going to teach that you can be religious and unrepentant, and that religion is useless and empty. So religion without repentance is useless. And then Jesus is going to tell us that religion without regeneration is useless. So Jesus's contemporaries are going to have those two things, religion without repentance, religion without regeneration. Now notice when Luke now transitions to verse 29, he's really picking up back in what is said in verse 16. As I noted already, Jesus was casting out a demon and healing a man who had been oppressed. And and some of those people attributed that to the prince of the demons. And Jesus has already corrected them with the story of the strong man entering the strong man's house and binding him and, and, and releasing and delivering those who were held captive. And notice in verse 16, Luke says, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, if you're going to understand our passage this morning, you've got to get verse 16. Others to test him kept demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now, what Luke is doing here is showing that Jesus is continuing on in correcting the hostility and the opposition that he is receiving from those contemporaries who are gathered around to demean him, who hate the light that he is and the sign that he is. Now, notice Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. Now, if you profess to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and your Jesus is not the Jesus that calls uh, unbelieving generations wicked, you do not worship the true Jesus. So, um, the, the humanitarian Jesus of post-modernity is not a Jesus who says this is a wicked generation. You'll never hear the humanitarian Jesus of modernity or post-modernity or late modernity or wherever else we're moving ever say this is a wicked and adulterous generation. But the true and living Christ, the only Jesus, the living Christ tells those contemporaries, this is an evil, a wicked generation. Now, I told um, those in our new members class that I have a friend who uh, looked up synonyms online for the word wicked, and he said, obviously, somebody from Boston had um, put all the synonyms in because the synonyms were awesome, cool, amazing, wicked. 
Um, we're going with the, the way wicked has been used throughout human history in the English-speaking world. Um, Jesus tells the religious leaders, the conservative religious teachers and leaders, that they were wicked. So these are the conservatives. They're not liberals. He says to them, you are a wicked generation because you seek a sign. Now, we're sort of confronted here with a conundrum because there are times in Scripture when God seems to, and I would argue does, condescend to the weakness of his people when they need to be strengthened. So we think, for instance, of Gideon. Remember, Gideon is told he's going to have the victory. God says, I'm going to give you victory over the Midianites. And, and Gideon goes to the Lord and he says, okay, Lord, if, if, if I can just do this, I'm going to put this fleece out. And if it's wet in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I'll know that you're going to give me the victory. And the Lord says, okay, put the fleece out. It'll be wet in the morning. The ground will be dry. And Gideon goes out there and it's wet and the ground is dry. And he rings it into a little bowl and fills up the bowl. And then Gideon again goes back to the Lord and he says, Lord, please don't be angry with me. He actually prefaces his prayer that way. Please don't get angry. I know this is wrong, but I really just want to know whether what you said is true or not. So I'm going to put the fleece out one more time. Could you please make it be dry, but the ground wet? And the Lord condescends to Gideon. He says, so be it. And the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. And Gideon wises up and learns not to test the Lord anymore. Um, There's also the account, isn't there, of Thomas, which we've seen in recent months, where he says, I will not believe till I see his hands and his side. And the Lord Jesus condescends. So what's the difference between Gideon and others asking for a sign to bolster them in faith and the generation of those that were rejecting Jesus in front of them? Well, very simply, they didn't want a sign. They had all the signs in the world. Jesus was like that bright neon light glaring everywhere to see what he was. And they weren't really asking for a sign. They were just trying to reject him further. Uh, One writer, David Gooding, said their seeking of a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe. Now, you have to listen carefully. Their seeking for a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe. If only adequate evidence were provided, it was a rationalizing of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence they already had. Now, don't don't miss this. Get this. I would never say don't get this. (laughs) Get this. It is possible for someone to move into the realm of religion, even in the Christian church, and yet not really know and want to know the Lord Jesus and not really repent of their sins. We're going to see that's at the foundation of this. And... Because they are so unwilling, they will continually act as if they're trying to be convinced of the truth of Christianity. When they're not really trying to be convinced of it at all, they don't want to repent of their sins. So what they do is they play a game as if they're sort of skeptical and they're, they're just trying to figure out whether it's true or not. And the reality is everybody knows. I mean, you live and move and have your being in God. Jesus said, you both know who I am and where I'm from. All the works that he did bore witness that he was from heaven. We don't need any evidence outside of scripture. It's all there. It has the infinite and eternal authoritative stamp of God on it. 
Jesus will tell that story. The rich man is in hell and he says, oh, just send somebody back. And no, they have Moses and the prophets. That's enough. Even if somebody rises from the dead, they will not believe. And, you know, the irony is he does rise from the dead and many still don't believe. And many of the ones who are crying out for a sign right here are the same ones who will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Not many days after this. So they had adequate evidence. He is the sign. They had all of it before them. And they're asking him for a sign is actually a sign of the impenitence, unrepentance of their hearts that they're unwilling to repent of their sins in turn. Well, how do we know that? Because Jesus then gives them these two Old Testament illustrations. He says to them, no sign is going to be given to this generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, um, very interesting. You might say, well, why didn't Jesus just do something? I mean, he could have just he could have. He could have made fire come down from heaven and burn them up. He could have made the earth open up and devour those people or somebody else. He could have done anything. He's God. He can do anything. Um, I think that Jesus doesn't give the people a sign because Luke said they were testing him. And if he had given them another sign after all the signs he gave them, he would be saying to them that they were right and that what he had done was inadequate. He'd be playing into their wicked trap and ultimately telling them they should be questioning who he is. And Jesus is not going to be subject to the testings of men who despise him and who hate him. Notice he gives them this this sign. He says, nothing's going to be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, that should strike us as kind of odd. Uh, What kind of sign is a story Now, it's a historical story, but what kind of sign is an Old Testament story of a guy who lived 500 some years before Jesus? What kind of sign is that to those people of who he is? Well, Matthew will flesh this out for us and he'll tell us that Jesus looks back at the account of Jonah and he sees in Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and being vomited up on land as a picture of his death and resurrection. Jesus is going to say, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's a redemptive historical parallel. Um, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was Israel's fiercest and most ruthless Opponents and enemies. Um, the, the Assyrians were some of the most brutal and heartless uh, people. And Nineveh was the capital of their power. And Jonah is not known to the Ninevites. They probably have never had the word of God. They've probably never heard a prophecy. They've ne- probably never had anything. They probably never had an Israelite prophet ever even come close to them. But God said, you're going to Nineveh and you're going to take a message to them that they're going to be overthrown and that judgment is coming on them. And Jonah refuses to do so. So God deals with him in the way that he deals with them. And in that supernatural death and resurrection, Jonah becomes assigned to the Ninevites. Jonathan Edwards actually, I think, rightly speculates that one of the reasons the Ninevites listened to him is because they actually believe what happened to him in the belly of the fish, that he would have told them about this account or others would have seen him come out of the fish 
and word spread quickly, so they listened to his message. Um, A people who had no religion, who had never met a prophet in their life, hear a man who claims to have just come out of the belly of a fish say, repent or perish, and the whole city repents, starting with the king. Um, Jonah became a sign. Jesus says, as he was a sign, so also the Son of Man would be assigned to this generation. Um, Jesus is telling them ultimately that he is the sign, that what's going to happen to him in his death and resurrection is the sign. That's the biggest sign. That's it. That's the sign of all signs. That's the thing pointing to who he actually is. That's the sign we are to look to and to listen to him and to repent of our sins. Now, I, I told you the point here is that religion without repentance um, is useless. I'd actually say it's harmful and evil. Jesus calls it evil. Jesus doesn't want you to be religious. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't want you to come to church every Sunday if you don't want to repent of your sins. He doesn't want you to act like a Christian. That's, the, that, that's what he's teaching here. Do not act religious if you don't want Jesus and you don't want to repent of your sins. And in fact, he uses uh, two illustrations. He uses uh, the Jonah illustration, and then he uses one from an even further place away. He points to the Queen of Sheba. Now, the Queen of Sheba was uh, probably the ruler of what today would be Ethiopia or maybe Yemen. And uh, she is called the Queen of the South. And if you read in the book of 1 Kings... Solomon, the son of David, the type of Christ, he, um, he's built palaces. He's built the kingdom of God in Israel in a magnificent way. His wisdom is known everywhere. God's special favor and grace on King Solomon is known everywhere. So great was it that a queen in Ethiopia hears about it and says, I have to go and see it for myself. And so she travels land and sea, and she goes, she brings a caravan, she brings gifts, she sees all of the magnificence of God's kingdom under Solomon's rule, she hears all the wisdom of Solomon, and she actually says that she almost fainted because of the greatness of it. And Jesus says, essentially, to the people there, he says, look, there's a greater than Jonah, and there's a greater than Solomon in your midst. And far from listening to me and fainting at the greatness of my wisdom and the heavenliness of my doctrine, you hate me and you're unwilling to repent. And here's the reality. On Judgment Day, he says the Queen of the South is going to rise up against this generation and condemn it. And on Judgment Day, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up with this generation and condemn it. I told you, I think the story of Jonah is historical. I think it's historical because Jesus did. He said there is a judgment day coming and real flesh and blood Ninevites are going to be standing there who heard the word, who repented, who turned to God in repentance and faith, who received all the grace and mercy of God that we receive in Christ and who will be in heaven. But on judgment day will stand against everyone who saw the sign of the son of man very clearly heard the gospel, saw his works, heard his teaching, knew all about it. And they will stand and bear witness 
unto condemnation against everyone who will not repent because they heard and repented and because she came and believed and saw and marveled. And there's one greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon that's here. Now, Jesus is teaching us, incidentally, that the whole of the Old Testament is about him. That's a very basic principle. He's also teaching us that the most important thing we should be concerned about when we think about the Lord Jesus is, have I repented of my sins? And am I repenting of my sins? I mentioned this morning to the new members class that, you know, Martin Luther intentionally made that first of the 95 theses what he did because of its importance, that all of life is repentance. That until we're in glory, we are constantly going back to the Lord in brokenness over our sin. We are constantly going back to him, acknowledging that we need his mercy and grace in Christ. We are constantly going back to him, confessing our sins, asking him to cleanse us, asking him to renew us, asking him to build us up, asking him to have mercy on us. We are constantly turning back. That's what a Christian life is. It's not a, I repented once and now I'm good. It is a constant going back to the Lord and receiving the Lord Jesus and taking him at his word and seeing his glory and recognizing who he is and trusting him. Um, You know, there's a word of encouragement here for you this morning. If the Ninevites, who are some of the most ruthless and barbaric and wicked enemies of the church of God in the old covenant, if they could receive the mercy and grace of God, then any sinner, no matter what you've done, can receive that mercy and grace freely in Christ. Jonah knew that. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is not because he was afraid of their barbarism. He wasn't afraid of them. He actually thought he was better than them. The reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he says to the Lord, I knew that you were gracious and merciful. And he didn't want God to have mercy and grace on his enemies. Now that means no matter what sin you have done, are doing, no matter what your life is like, If you will turn back to the Lord Jesus, if you will see the signs of his messianic nature and you will go to him in faith and repentance, every sin you've ever done has already been forgiven because of what he does on the cross. Every sin sin you will do has already been forgiven because of what he did on the cross. Um, You know, this is one of those severe passages and there's going to be more as we go through Luke. uh, And yet it is a comforting passage. Jesus is essentially trying to stir people up to say, yes, I will rise and go to Jesus. I will lay all my sin at the foot of the cross. I will go to him to be washed in his blood. It's this beautiful verse in Hosea. And, you know, Hosea's got that great story of rebellion and then turning back to the Lord and forgiveness and God receiving those who are unbelievably rebellious. And. Um, The Lord actually says at one point through the prophet Hosea to the people of Israel, he says, go to the Lord and take words with you. I love this. He even gives you the words. So if you're one of those people who are like, I struggle, know how to what to say. Okay, God's going to give you the words. The Lord says in Hosea, go to the Lord, return to him, 
take words with you and say, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously. That's what the men and women in this account should have been doing with the Redeemer in their midst. They should have been willing to travel land and sea to come and see him. You know who did, though? The wise men. The wise men were like the Queen of Sheba. They heard, they spent their own resources, they traveled land and sea to come and bow before the baby king. That's what it looks like to know who Christ is. You will do anything to get to him. Here he is in their very midst, and they're rejecting him and testing him and trying him because of the wickedness of their hearts. Now, that sort of opens for us the second question, why? Why? If Jesus is who he says he is, if his signs are so clear, if he is like the neon light that is just so glaringly filling everything, why do so many not believe? And maybe why do you not believe? Maybe. Why? Well, Jesus teaches through a parable the reason why they didn't believe. He says that religion without regeneration is useless. Notice the second part in verse 33. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. He is the light. He is the lamp. He is saying he is the bright flashing sign who came down from heaven. Now, very interesting. Before we look at the light and the parable of the light entering or not entering the body, the people, when they tested Jesus, they kept saying to him, Give us a sign from heaven. So as you read through the gospel narratives, they, keep, they don't just say, give us a sign. They say, give us a sign from heaven. Now, I've already told you, he is the sign from heaven. He's the sign. He came from heaven. He is God. He is the son of God. He is the sign. He is the incarnate God. Everywhere he walks, he is the sign from heaven. He, he remember, likened himself to the bread that came down from heaven. He's the true manna. His flesh is the true food for the souls of his people. And, and so, ironically, he is the very thing that they act like they're asking for. Now, they, they were geared to think the bigger the sign, the better. And if this man is really from God, then, you know, he's going to rain bread down from heaven like Moses did. Or fire is going to come down from heaven like Elijah did. And so... Jesus tells them that it's not that he won't give them a sign from heaven. He is the sign from heaven. It's that their hearts are darkened by their depravity so that they cannot and will not see that light. So he is the sign. Everywhere he goes, he is placarded as the only redeemer and savior. He is set out before the eyes of all men. But men will not see what he is because they cannot see what he is. Jesus says he's the light. Nobody hides that light. They put it out there just like he was out there for everybody to see. The kingdom of God has come. The power of God has come. Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. And yet, notice he says in this parable, verse 34, your eye is the lamp of the body. So what he's saying to them is your inability... To see who I am, to believe who I am, to repent and trust in me is not any problem with me. The problem is with you. He says, because your eye, the spiritual sight, your ability to see spiritually 
is the lamp through which that light is going to come or not going to come. And he says, if the light enters the body, the whole body's full of light. That means that you see, you know, you belong to him, you follow him. But if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's comprehensive and you're unable to see. Now, sometimes I think people get hung up on this because they think, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying not to see. Um, a number of years ago, Anna and I were driving from Columbia, South Carolina home, and we missed the 95, the sign for 95. And I think we made it almost to Charleston. We were talking. It was one of those moments where, you know, you have little kids and you realize you still love each other and, you know, you haven't had time away together like this. And, and we made it almost to Charleston. We were like, uh, we need to turn around. We somehow missed the sign. We didn't mean to miss the sign. We just drove right by it. Lots of people just go through life unregenerate, not purposefully saying I'm going to miss the sign, but just missing all the signs of Jesus because of the darkness of their hearts. They're just driving right past all the signs. They will not see it. They cannot see them. They're just going forward. And Jesus says, notice, therefore, be careful lest the light in you is darkness. Now, here's the connection between these two portions of our text this morning. The reason why men and women do not repent of their sins is because they're not regenerate. And the reason why they're unregenerate is because we are born dead in sins and trespasses. And by nature, every one of us is blind and has dark and evil hearts. And until God floods our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, we cannot see, we will not see, and we will go on living in darkness. But the second that he opens the eyes of our hearts to see the light of Christ and to see who Jesus is and to see what he did at the cross, and to see what he did for me at the cross. And he floods our hearts with light. We go on seeing. We go on repenting. We go on hating our sins. We go on loving him. When we fall, we go on going back to him. We stay close to him. We don't move from that sign. We know that he is the sign all the way to eternal life, that he is the only Messiah directing us into the very presence of God. And that at the end of the day, the only way we can go into the presence of God is through the Lord Jesus. And as we come to him, we come repenting and confessing and believing and loving and rejoicing and hoping in him and being grateful to God for him. Now, there are two people in this text Jesus has already intimated this earlier. He said, you're either for me or against me. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't carve out sort of a gray area of wandering but not lost. By the way, that's a big pet peeve for me, the whole not all who wander or lost thing. Jesus says, you're for me or you're against me. That's it. You either have an eye that receives the light from his word, the truth of the gospel, the truth about him that permeates the whole of you 
that makes you desire to be with him and trust him and love him, or it's all darkness. Now, I can't look at you and you can't look at me and tell me what's in my heart. And I can't tell you what's in your heart. And I can't tell you if God has ever opened your eyes to flood your soul with the light of the gospel. I can't. And you can't look at me and tell me. We can look at our lives and we can say, well, there's fruit and a tree is known by its fruit. But a lot of people can counterfeit fruit. Um, A lot of people can go very far in religion and yet have never taken one step in a life of regeneration and repentance. Now, I want to ask you this morning, because on Judgment Day, and Jesus mentioned Judgment Day, he said the men of Nineveh were going to rise up in the judgment against this generation and condemn it. And the Queen of the South was going to rise up against that generation and condemn it. That day is hastening very quickly for us. And the only thing that's going to matter is whether you had eyes to see and you could see who Christ was and you really know him and you're really repenting and turning to him and trusting in him and staying close to him or you are a religious hypocrite. That's it. Light or darkness, for me, against me. That's it. And then eternity, heaven or hell. That's it. Now, that's the reason Jesus is so definitive in his teaching. Now, here's the beautiful thing this morning. If you're here and you're, you're saying, you know, I believe I've been regenerate. But, you know, I, I, I have sin struggles in my life. I struggle with this. I often feel condemned because of this. Here's the good news. You can go right back to the Savior you went to in the first place. And there is grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration and healing to everybody who goes to him. Um, The same Christ we go to initially is the same Christ we keep going back to. And he says, come to me. I'm not going to cast you out. Whoever confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive his sins. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Come, be restored, come repentantly and be comforted in the grace of God. Um, I've told you the bad news. If you're unwilling to repent, it's because you're unregenerate. And God has to give you the new birth. And you need to cry out for that. You need to say, Lord, flood my soul with the light of the gospel. You need to cry out for that. But here's the good news. No matter how much you have lived in rebellion, wickedness, No matter how much you haven't wanted to hear about Christ, no matter how much you haven't loved the scriptures, no matter how much you've wanted really to live in darkness, even under a religious facade. If you will go to Christ today, Jesus says he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the reason he taught what he did was that men and women and boys and girls would say, I am going to go to Christ And I'm going to go to him for forgiveness and for light and restoration and healing and power. I'm going to go to him to know God better and to stay close to God. I'm going to abide in his light. And then here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. The one who says, I am the light of the world, then says to those who have their souls flooded with his light, you are the light of the world. And then you become a conduit of 
disseminating that light and pointing others to Christ in word and deed. Now, I don't know about you, but my biggest need is to return to the Lord in brokenness, in repentance, in hatred for sin every day of my life. And I I am guessing that's your biggest need. And so I want to press on you this morning to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, to realize that he's a greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. He's got all the glory, all the power. His death and resurrection are the sign. He is the sign. And he says, come to me, believe in me, trust in me, turn and live because of me. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know these are weighty truths and yet truths that we so desperately need. We thank you that you have breathed them out. We pray that you would not allow us to be a people like uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Israel who hardened their hearts and who wickedly tested your son. And we pray, our God, that you would give us soft and believing hearts. We ask this morning that you would flood our minds and our hearts with the light of Christ. We pray that you would help us to see the brightness of his glory, the very glory of God made flesh. We pray that you would help us to see especially his sacrifice on the cross, his standing in our place and taking our sin. We pray that you would make us to see and believe that sign of his resurrection, that we would be a people that cast ourselves wholly on him. And so, our God, would you please do these things in us for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.